Well, hello there. Welcome to Cavalcade. Knock, knock. Knock, knock. Cavalcade is brought to you by Harbor Repertory Theater. My name is Keith Bridges. I'm the Artistic Director of Harbor Rep, and I want to thank you for listening. Hello, this is Oscar Bombadasco. You may know me from Bombadasco Paperclips, the best paperclips in the world by far. Believe me, I could tell you all about Bombadasco Paperclips and explain in great detail why they are the best paperclips ever, but that is not why I am here today. The world around us is frustrating, annoying, stupid. It's crazy. It's infuriating. And it's a little scary. Some days it feels like it's the end of the world. And those are the good days. If the world's going to end, at least it could not be so freaking dark and confusing. The fabric of our society may be tearing away right underneath us, but it doesn't have to be all bad, does it? That's why we at Bombadasco Paperclips have joined with the other fictional local businesses in the Anti-Dystopian League. At the Anti-Dystopian League, we understand that it is a difficult time for just about everyone. But no matter how bad it may get, it's better if we stick together. And if we stick together, we can get through whatever happens. So remember, make sure to vote, then go find someone you disagree with and do something nice for them. Something like giving them a box of Bombadasco Paperclips. The best paper clips in the world by far. The monster rises up out of the bog once a year to make its way to our family home. It must come to eat and be seen. If it's not seen, it's not really monstrous. It's just another thing out there shambling among the trees. Beastly is in the eye of the beholder. But don't you worry about that. Don't focus on the monster. That's not what's important. I understand you're scared, and I'm sorry I had to tie your hands behind your back, that I had to come into your room at night. You wouldn't have come with me otherwise. We don't have much time. I'll explain quickly, but we have to keep moving. When I said I'm your sister, I mean it for real. Look at the crook of my nose, just like Mama's, and this dimple on my chin. That's the Aiken's chin. We've all got it. It matches yours. This is going to come as a shock, but you should know. You have many more brothers and sisters than you realize. Cousins, too. Had, anyway. How many do you have now? Lindsay, sure. The favorite daughter. And Connor, the golden boy. Cousin Bo must still be there. Aunt Kim always loved him best. They keep the favorites. <coughs> Careful there. Eyes on your feet. You'll trip in the dark. Surely you've noticed that Mama and Aunt Kim and Aunt Rachel are always pregnant. At least one of them has a baby every year. Your brothers and sisters and cousins don't stick around too long, though. And when Daddy and Mama tell you stories about where they went, the stories never quite make sense, do they? Maybe your sisters have started having babies now. Lindsay, probably, right? Why are the babies always home births? So no one outside will know? Why don't we go to regular school? I'll tell you why, but you have to move faster. When someone notices you gone, they'll come looking. 
They'll find both of us. It'll be bad for me. It'll be worse for you. There's no easy way to say this, so I'll just say it. Where your brothers and sisters and your cousins go, once a year, the family must give one of them to the monster. It's been that way as long as anyone can recall. There's an old cypress tree out here with a hitch nailed into the trunk. Once a year, Daddy or Uncle Vernon or Uncle Richard, they take turns. They bring one of the children out here and they tie them to the tree. They leave them there. Then the monster comes for them. That's what makes the family rich. The Aikens farm has the most fertile land, the biggest yields. Grandpa used that extra money to buy more land. Daddy turned it into more farmland up in Nebraska, Oklahoma. His precious seed patents, his government contracts. None of it works unless they take a child here every year. About your age, eight, nine, no more than 10, before puberty sours the meat. What's the relation between the child and the monster and the crop yield? I can't tell you, probably no one can. It's been going on so long, nobody can remember. I do know they tried finding an outsider child from town, one who wouldn't be missed. Ever hear Victor complain about the drought of 73 when we nearly lost everything? That was the year of the kid from town. In 1998, when the company stock tanked and Daddy had to sell off all of his Florida investments, you weren't even born then, but I'm sure you've heard him complain about it. That was the year after he lashed me to the tree. He didn't tie me tight enough, though. He'd done it so many times he got too comfortable. I ran and I never came back. Until now. Because you're going to be next. You're ripe. If we don't hurry to the other side of the woods, or I've got a car waiting for us, you'll be tied to the cypress tree, same as I was. Nobody knows what it looks like. But once I heard Aunt Rachel get drunk and cry to Uncle Victor about something her grandmother told her, how your bones become part of it. She said her grandma told her, the skulls of all the children form a shell around its chest and back, clear down to its tail. Aunt Rachel wanted to go with the child this time and wait so she could see her babies again. Uncle Victor slapped her. I never saw her drink again after that. <coughs> what? <coughs> well, yes, that is a cypress tree. There are plenty of those. <coughs> Stop struggling. <coughs> Stop. <coughs> All right, I'll be honest. Just lean against the trunk. You might as well stop fighting against me. I tied your hands tight. I know how easy it is to slip loose bonds. I'm sorry, kid. I don't mean to be a bad sister. No, don't tell me your name. I don't want to know. You don't know the names of the rest of them. Brett and Andy and Hannah and Dreema and Christine. Daddy was going to take you out here anyway. I'm sure any time now. But that's... This is why I brought the video camera. See, I'm gonna set it on this tripod here so you won't really be alone. Think of this camera like I'm here with you, looking at it when it comes. I have to see what it looks like. I have to see if I can recognize Brett and Andy and Hannah and Dreema and Christine. Then I'll show everyone everywhere. I'll show them what our family tree looks like. This won't happen to you for nothing. Maybe it's no comfort, but you'll be the last one. Wait, shh. That sound. Do you hear it too?
Brian Miller, performed by Tiffa Foster. Cavalcade is brought to you by the Minneapolis Scented Mask Company. Are you tired of breathing your own hot breath? Why not enjoy the pandemic a little more with a scented mask that creates a soothing, relaxing feeling as you move about? Choose from dozens of popular odors like mom's homemade chocolate chip cookies, baby hair, and the competence of the Obama administration. Instead of breathing in your own anger and resentment, breathe in a refreshing scent that says, it's all gonna be okay. Minneapolis scented masks, available wherever products are in short supply. devastated the country. No pestilence had ever been so fatal or so hideous. Blood was its avatar and its seal the redness and the horror of blood. There were sharp pains and sudden dizziness and then profuse bleeding at the pores with dissolution. The scarlet stains upon the body and especially upon the face of the victim were the pest ban which shut him out from the aid and from the sympathy of his fellow men and the whole seizure, progress, and termination of the disease were the incidents of half an hour. But the Prince Prospero was happy and dauntless and sagacious. When his dominions were half depopulated, he summoned to his presence a thousand hale and light-hearted friends from among the knights and dames of his court, and with these retired to the deep seclusion of one of his castellated abbeys. This was an extensive and magnificent structure, the creation of the prince's own eccentric yet august taste. A strong and lofty wall girdled it in. This wall had gates of iron. The courtiers having entered brought furnaces and massy hammers and welded the bolts. They resolved to leave means neither of ingress or egress to the sudden impulses of despair or frenzy from within. The abbey was amply provisioned. With such precautions, the courtiers might bid defiance to contagion. The external world could take care of itself. In the meantime, it was folly to grieve or to think. The prince had provided all the appliances of pleasure. There were buffoons, there were improvisatory, there were ballet dancers, there were musicians, there was beauty and there was wine. All these and security were within. Without was the Red Death. It was toward the close of the fifth or sixth month of his seclusion, and while the pestilence raged most furiously abroad, that the Prince Prospero entertained his thousand friends at a masked ball of the most unusual magnificence. It was a voluptuous scene, that masquerade. But first, let me tell you of the rooms in which it was held. There were seven, an imperial suite, in many places, however, such suites form a long and straight vista, while the folding doors slide back nearly to the walls on either hand, so that the view of the whole extent is scarcely impeded. Here the case was different, as might have been expected from the Duke's love of the bazaar. The apartments were so irregularly disposed that the vision embraced but little more than one at a time. There was a sharp turn at every 20 or 30 yards, and each turn a novel effect. To the right and left, in the middle of each wall, 
A tall and narrow Gothic window looked out upon a closed corridor which pursued the windings of the suite. These windows were of stained glass whose color varied in accordance with the prevailing hue of the decorations of the chamber into which it opened. That at the eastern extremity was hung, for example, in blue, and vividly blue were its windows. The second chamber was purple in its ornaments and tapestries, and here the panes were purple. The third was green throughout, and so were the casements. The fourth was furnished and lighted with orange, the fifth with white, the sixth with violet. The seventh apartment was closely shrouded in black velvet tapestries that hung all over the ceiling and down the walls, falling in heavy folds upon a carpet of the same material and hue. But in this chamber only, the color of the windows failed to correspond with the decorations. The panes here were scarlet, a deep blood color. Now, in no one of the seven apartments was there any lamp or candelabrum amid the profusion of golden ornaments that lay scattered to and fro or depended from the roof. There was no light of any kind emanating from lamp or candle within the suite of chambers. But in the corridors that followed the suite, there stood opposite to each window a heavy tripod bearing a brazier of fire that projected its rays through the tinted glass and so glaringly illuminated the room and thus were produced a multitude of gaudy and fantastic appearances. But in the western or black chamber, the effect of the firelight that streamed upon the dark hangings through the blood-tinted panes was ghastly in the extreme and produced so wild a look upon the countenances of those who entered that there were few of the company bold enough to set foot within its precincts at all. It was in this apartment also that there stood against the western wall a gigantic clock of ebony. Its pendulum swung to and fro with a dull, heavy, monotonous clang. And when the minute hand had made the circuit of the face and the hour was to be stricken, there came from the brazen lungs of the clock a sound which was clear and loud and deep and exceedingly musical, but of so peculiar a note and emphasis that at each lapse of an hour, the musicians of the orchestra were constrained to pause momentarily in their performance to hearken to the sound. And thus the waltzers perforce ceased their evolutions, and there was a brief disconcert of the whole gay company. And while the chimes of the clock yet rang, it was observed that the giddiest grew pale, and the more aged and sedate passed their hands over their brows, as if in confused reverie or meditation. But when the echoes had fully ceased, a light laughter at once pervaded the assembly. The musicians looked at each other and smiled as if at their own nervousness and folly, and made whispering bows each to the other that the next chiming of the clock should produce in them no similar emotion. And then, after the lapse of 60 minutes, which embraced 3,600 seconds of the time that flies, there came yet another chiming of the clock, and then there were the same disconcert and tremulousness and meditation as before. But in spite of these things, it was a gay and magnificent revel. The tastes of the Duke were peculiar. He had a fine eye for colors and effects. He disregarded the decora of mere fashion. His plans were bold and fiery and his conceptions glowed with barbaric luster. There are some who would have thought him mad. His followers felt that he was not. It was necessary to hear and see and touch him to be sure that he was not. He had directed in great part the movable embellishments of the seven chambers upon occasion of this great fete, 
and it was his own guiding taste which had given character to the masqueraders. Be sure, they were grotesque. There were much glare and glitter and piquancy and phantasm, much of what has been since seen in Hernani. There were arabesque figures with unsuited limbs and appointments. There were delirious fancies such as the madmen fashions. There was much of the beautiful, much of the wanton, much of the bizarre, something of the terrible, and not a little of what might have excited disgust. To and fro in the seven chambers there stalked, in fact, a multitude of dreams. And these, the dreams, writhed in and about, taking hue from the rooms, and causing the wild music of the orchestra to seem as the echo of their steps. And anon, there strikes the ebony clock which stands in the hall of the velvet. And then for a moment, all is still and all is silent save the voice of the clock. The dreams are stiff frozen as they stand, but the echoes of the chime die away. They have endured but an instant and a light half subdued laughter floats after them as they depart. And now again, the music swells and the dreams live and writhe to and fro more merrily than ever, taking hue from the many tented windows through which stream the rays from the tripods. But to the chamber which lies most westwardly of the seven, there are now none of the maskers who venture, for the night is waning away and there flows a ruddier light through the blood-colored panes, and the blackness of the sable drapery appalls. And to him whose foot falls upon the sable carpet, there comes from the near clock of ebony a muffled peal more solemnly emphatic than any which reaches their ears who indulge in the more remote gaieties of the other apartments. But these other apartments were densely crowded, and in them beat feverishly the heart of life. And the revel went whirlingly on until at length there commenced the sounding of midnight upon the clock. And then the music ceased, as I have told, and the evolutions of the waltzers were quieted, and there was an uneasy cessation of all things as before. But now there were twelve strokes to be sounded by the bell of the clock, and thus it happened, perhaps, that more of thought crept with more of time into the meditations of the thoughtful among those who reveled. And thus, too, it happened, perhaps, that before the last echoes of the last chime had utterly sunk into silence, there were many individuals in the crowd who had found leisure to become aware of the presence of a masked figure which had arrested the attention of no single individual before. And the rumor of this new presence, having spread itself whisperingly around, there arose at length from the whole company a buzz or murmur expressive of disapprobation and surprise, then finally of terror, of horror, and of disgust. In an assembly of phantasms such as I have painted, it may well be supposed that no ordinary appearance could have excited such sensation. In truth, the masquerade license of the night was nearly unlimited, but the figure in question had out-Heroded Herod and had gone beyond the bounds of even the prince's indefinite decorum. There are chords in the hearts of the most reckless, which cannot be touched without emotion. Even with the utterly lost, to whom life and death are equally jests, there are matters of which no jest can be made. The whole company indeed seemed now deeply to feel that in the costume and bearing of the stranger, neither wit nor propriety existed. The figure was tall and gaunt and shrouded from head to foot in the habiliments of the grave, 
The mask which concealed the visage was made so nearly to resemble the countenance of a stiffened corpse that the closest scrutiny must have had difficulty in detecting the cheat. And yet all this might have been endured, if not approved, by the mad revelers around. But the murmur had gone so far as to assume the type of the Red Death. His vesture was dabbled in blood, and his broad brow, with all the features of the face, was besprinkled with the scarlet horror. When the eyes of Prince Prospero fell upon this spectral image, which with a slow and solemn movement, as if more fully to sustain its role, stalked to and fro among the waltzers, he was seen to be convulsed, in the first moment with a strong shudder either of terror or distaste, but in the next, his brow reddened with rage. Who dares, he demanded hoarsely of the courtiers who stood near him. Who dares insult us with this blasphemous mockery? Seize him and unmask him, that we may know whom we have to hang at sunrise from the battlements. It was in the eastern or blue chamber in which stood the Prince Prospero as he uttered these words. They rang throughout the seven rooms loudly and clearly, for the Prince was a bold and robust man, and the music had become hushed at the waving of his hand. It was in the blue room where stood the prince with a group of pale courtiers by his side. At first, as he spoke, there was a slight rushing movement of this group in the direction of the intruder, who at the moment was also near at hand, and now with deliberate and stately step made closer approach to the speaker. But from a certain nameless awe with which the mad assumptions of the murmur had inspired the whole party, there were found none who put forth a hand to seize him, so that unimpeded he passed within a yard of the prince's person. And, while the vast assembly, as if with one impulse, shrank from the centers of the room to the walls, he made his way uninterruptedly, but with the same solemn and measured step which had distinguished him from the first, through the blue chamber to the purple, through the purple to the green, through the green to the orange, through this again to the white, and even thence to the violet, ere a decided movement had been made to arrest him. It was then, however, that the Prince Prospero, maddening with rage and the shame of his own momentary cowardice, rushed hurriedly through the six chambers, while none followed him on account of a deadly terror that had seized upon all. He bore aloft a drawn dagger and had approached in rapid impetuosity to within three or four feet of the retreating figure, when the latter, having attained the extremity of the velvet apartment, turned suddenly and confronted his pursuer. There was a sharp cry, and the dagger dropped gleaming upon the sable carpet, upon which, instantly afterwards, fell prostrate in death the Prince Prospero. Then, summoning the wild courage of despair, a throng of the revelers at once threw themselves into the black apartment, and, seizing the murmur, whose tall figure stood erect and motionless within the shadow of the ebony clock, gasped in unutterable horror at finding the grave cerements and corpse-like mask which they had handled with so violent a rudeness untenanted by any tangible form. And now was acknowledged the presence of the Red Death. He had come like a thief in the night, and one by one dropped the revelers in the blood-bedewed halls of their revel, and died each in the despairing posture of his fall. And the life of the ebony clock went out with that of the last of the gay. And the flames of the tripods expired. And darkness and decay and the red death held illimitable dominion over all.
The Mask of the Red Death by Edgar Allan Poe. Cavalcade is sponsored in part by Sprayer's Ice Cream in the heart of downtown. Surprise, Sprayers is still here. Still serving the most unique ice cream you've ever stuffed into your face. Granted, we can only serve you by tossing scoops at your mouth from 15 feet away, but trying to catch the icy balls of frozen dairy delight is part of the fun. Make sure you try one of our new flavors for the fall of 2020, like Ash in Your Mouth, or Pumpkin Spiced False Nostalgia, or Pile of Dead Leaves. Sprayer's Ice Cream has joined with the Anti-Dystopian League because we understand that during these troubled times, we are all trying to figure out what normal is. But we also know that abnormal also means unusual. And unusual doesn't have to mean bad. Join us along with the Anti-Dystopian League in helping us all get through the hellscape of the coming months together. And remember, make sure to vote, then try to be nice to someone you don't know no matter what flavors of ice cream they do or don't like. Sprayer's Ice Cream Shop, unusually good. Cavalcade is created by artists all over the U.S. and produced in the Twin Cities of Minneapolis-St. Paul by Harbor Repertory Theater. Harbor Rep is Mario Baldessari, Robert Burrell, Rachel Bridges, Elise Cole, Tiffa Foster, Raina Kay, Brian Miller, Zachary Olson, Neil Patrick Peterson, and me, Keith Bridges. Check out our website at cavalcadepodcast.net. You can find out more about us, share us on social media, donate to support the show, sign up for our email list, subscribe, or I don't know, whatever you do with a website. Or hey, maybe just leave us a note. We'd love to hear from you. Once again, thanks for listening. Thank you.